Good morning, folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me this morning here on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and today we've got a jam-packed show for you with four outstanding guests that I'm really looking forward to sharing with you today. We're going to kick off today's show with one of my all-time favorite guests, and that's Top 100 instructor Eric Johnson. And not only does Eric share, you know, great insights into what's going on around the game of golf and great instructional tips as well, but, you know, the positivity and the enthusiasm that he shares every time he's on the show is so infectious. He makes every segment that he joins me here so much fun, so I can't wait to have him join me here in just a few minutes. Following Eric, I'll be joined by former tour player and uh, now founder of Global Value Commerce, and that's Mr. Ed Byman. Ed won the 1974 Mexico Open, outdueling defending champion Lee Trevino by a couple of strokes, so I can't wait to hear that story. His company, Global Value Commerce, is the uh, industry leader in uh, trading club in the trading club market. So they sell more used and accept more trading equipment than anybody else does. And they're also the authority on club valuation. So a lot to talk about with Ed when he joins me a little bit later on in this half hour. Following him, I'll get a visit from Bob Jones the fourth, the grandson of Bobby Jones. We'll of course talk about his famous grandfather, plus uh, plus what it was like growing up Jones, right? So uh, we'll talk about that. Plus, Dr. Bob, he is a sports psychologist, so we'll talk about how important that job has become to players out on tour, plus get some advice from him as well, and he'll join me a little bit later on in the hour. Then we'll round out the show with a visit from actor-turned-golf uh, show host Mitchell Lawrence. For those of you who have listened you know, to the show regularly this year, you know how much uh, I think of his brother Matthew, who has joined me a couple of times. Uh, Mitch and Matthew, as you guys probably know, they're twins. Mitch is four years older, or four minutes older, I should say. So uh, we'll talk about what it's been like uh, growing up as Matthew's older brother, if you will. We'll also talk about his stellar acting career. And uh, you've seen Mitch in things like, you know, movies like The Hand That Rocked the Cradle. You've seen him on TV shows like One Tree Hill and Dawson's Creek, In Living Color, In the Heat of the Night. One of my favorite things that he's been a part of was episode one of Tom Hanks uh, HBO miniseries from the earth to the moon so we'll talk about that as well and so many more things uh, you know when Mitchell joins me he's now the uh, you know the um, host of a, a golf podcast in his own right and the name of that show is talking golf getaways with his co-host Darren Bunch uh, which you can find online at thegolfnewsnet.com so we'll talk about that and a whole much more when uh, Mitch joins me about an hour from now so we have a ton of great stories and information coming your way on this edition of Next on the T. I'm so glad that you're here to take the journey with me over the next 90 minutes. As you folks know, Next on the T, you know, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from our good friend Steve Rondonero about all the great things they've got going on up there. Play the courses the champions play. The Pete Dye and Donald Ross courses at French Lick Resort. The 2017 NCGOA National Course of the Year. Our Pete Dye course hosts the first-ever Senior LPGA Championship presented by Old National Bank this July. French Lick's Donald Ross course is looking good as it turns 100 this summer and hosts the Donald Ross Centennial Classic Symmetra Tour event. Book your golf vacation now at FrenchLick.com. Yeah, be sure to go to FrenchLick.com, folks, to see for yourself how great a place that they've got up there at the French Lick Resort and to book your stay as well. And speaking of great, over the last several months, you've heard me talking about the meteoric rise of the Bradley Putter Company. From concept last year on Black Friday to one of the sensations at this year's merchandise uh, PGA Merchandise Show back in January, well, I got mine, and folks, it's a beauty. 
We're proud to be uh, partnering with Bradley to help promote their unique line of putters. They're made from burl wood, and folks, these aren't just ornamental putters here. People are raving about the look and the feel that the Bradley putters have. You know, they have custom-made, you know, shapes, sizes, colors, all of those sorts of things. Mine is black and yellow to support my Pittsburgh teams. Go online to BradleyPutters.com to see for yourself how fantastic this new line of putters really is. And please also check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Company. Summer is here, right? Is your wardrobe ready? The folks at Bobby Jones are, and they can help you find the perfect way to liven up your wardrobe for summer, right? They've got great polo-style shirts. They've got tech shorts and pants to belts. You name it. Everything you need to feel great and look great, whether you're in the office, out on the town, or out on the golf course. Go to bobbyjones.com to see their new summer line. Plus, while you're in a Bobby Jones frame of mind, go to bobbyjonesclubs.com to see the great line of drivers, fairway woods, and hybrids designed by one of the game's most influential equipment designers, and that is Jesse Ortiz. Like his father, Lou, and Bobby Jones himself, you know Jesse has a passion for golf and golf club design. You remember his great tri-metal fairway woods from his days out at, uh, at Olimar? Well, now he's putting his creativity and his innovative designs to work creating great golf equipment for the Bobby Jones Company. Check them out online by going to bobbyjonesclubs.com. And I also want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Callaway Golf. Callaway has been the fastest-growing golf brand since 2013, and the ChromeSoft Golf Ball is a major part of the reason why. ChromeSoft is extremely fast, incredibly soft, and unbelievably easy to control, which is why guys like Phil Mickelson, Patrick Reed, Jim Furyk have all changed to the ChromeSoft. You've got to be willing to change to get better. ChromeSoft and the new ChromeSoft X are available in stores now. See what they can do for you by going to CallawayGolf.com. Chromesoft. It's the ball that changed the ball. And folks, if you were with us a few weeks ago, you heard about the great things that Russ Holden and uh, the folks at Caddy for a Cure are doing. I believe so heavily in the things that Russ and his company are doing that you know, we're proud to be partnering with them now. One of the most unique opportunities in the world of professional golf is now available to you with Caddy for a Cure. Spend a day inside the ropes with one of the world's best players as their caddy. It's a fantastic way to have the time of your life while supporting the wounded service uh, members out there and, uh, you know, a, a terrible disease, Fancona anemia. You're going to get to walk side by side with your tour player experiencing professional golf as an insider. In addition to this amazing experience, you know, you'll receive a fantastic gift package from Caddy for a Cure, including things like Under Armour logo apparel and, a, and an eyewear package as well, a tour caddy bib suitable for autographs and framing, a tin cup ball uh, marking gift, uh, chef's cut real jerky, and a uh, professional photograph you know, of your day. So please go online to caddyforacure.com, and for is spelled out F-O-R, caddyforacure.com, to learn more information about this great opportunity. All right, now back with me and folks making his ninth appearance on the French Lick Resort guest line is Eric Johnson. Eric is the director of instruction at Nemecoen Woodlands Resort, which is an unbelievable resort located up in Farmington, Pennsylvania, which is a little southeast of Pittsburgh near the West Virginia border. Prior to moving over there, Eric was the uh, director of instruction at Oakmont Country Club. Golf Magazine has named Eric a top 100 instructor every year since the year 2011. He has also been recognized by Golf Digest 
as a top 40, under 40 teacher. He is a three-time Tri-Star, uh, Tri-State PGA Teacher of the Year as well. He is also a two-time Horton Smith Award winner for his contributions to education. Eric played out on tour on the Canadian Tour, the Sunshine Tour, the Golden Bear Tour. He played his college golf and was a four-year letterman at Mississippi State from 1992 to 1995. He helped them win back-to-back titles at the Kroger Intercollegiate uh, title uh, back in 1994 and 1995. You can also tell from the number of appearances, nine now, how much uh, fun I have every time Eric joins me as a uh, guest here on Next on the T, And then I'm honored that he is up very early from his trip out to Lake Tahoe this week. And he is with me here this morning here again on Next on the T. Hey, Eric, how are you, my friend? Well, Chris, thanks for everything. That's a great introduction. I mean, the show is going to be over by the time I get done with all that stuff. I'm not sure where you come <laughs> up with that. I, it's, I, it's just great for me to talk to the most organized man on radio. I mean, Every time I'm on there, I, I'm amazed. Thanks, Chris. Absolutely, Eric. Thank you, my friend. So, Eric, talk about what's got you out to, in uh, Lake Tahoe this week. <clears throat> well, we just opened our uh, second golf course at uh, at, uh, at Nemecolon, and it's called Shepherd's Rock, and, and uh, it's Pete Dye Design and Tim Liddy co-design, and uh, Tim Liddy's been with Pete forever, and, and they finally kind of let him take the reins there a little bit on this one, and and it's a magnificent, excellent golf course. And we had a huge celebrity pro-am. It was so cool. Uh, we had Roethlisberger in. We had Willie Robertson in. We had, you know, Heath Miller. We had Brett Kiesel. We had a bunch of tour players in. And John Daly was there for the week. And, you know, we just, we just had an absolute ball during that event. And, uh so I was lucky enough to, you know, hop on a plane here with Willie Robertson and head out to uh, Tahoe for a few days with my son. So I was lucky to lucky to be out here, walked around with him on Wednesday in the pro-am and, and helped out a little bit. And uh, But I'll tell you what, Willie Robertson, the greatest guy I have, I think I've ever met and reminds me exactly like Arnold Palmer. Um, I don't think people get it how great the man is. He's just a super swell guy. He'll do anything for anybody. He'll sign. He'll stay there and sign autographs until every single human being has gotten an autograph. He's and you know when you're when you're celebrities, your heroes, you know when they live up to expectations or exceed expectations, it's uh, it's a cool thing. It really is. Yeah, no doubt. You know, for for our listeners, remind them about Willie and and, and his career. Uh, well, R- Willie Robertson, you know, the Duck Dynasty guys and. Uh, you know, they started out making these duck calls and took it, you know, gangbuster, and they did that show, uh, Duck Dynasty. And, you know, honestly, they, you know, they, Willie looks like a like a crazy redneck, but he's not. He's a, he just has a big beard, and he's a great human. And uh, we had a lot of fun playing out there, playing, you know, Texas Hold'em and, and having a good time, and it was a lot of fun. Just a good man. Yeah, no doubt. Really good man. And Eric, you know, so you got to see, you know, we're both, you know, we're both Steelers fans. You know, I'm from Pittsburgh as well, and you got to, you know, see, a, you know, a bunch as you named off a bunch of guys there that played, you know, former Steelers that played in that pro am event. Who's the best Steeler you saw out there? Who's got the best game? Oh, Roethlisberger by far. He was, I mean, he was tight. You know, he was hitting a great. Um, I think he was three under. He, you know, I checked in on him in the front nine. He made three birdies already in the front nine. I mean, they, he was playing really. He's playing really good. He did a he did a piece with Matt Janella where they went out and played a few holes and 
and the guys from the golf channel were busting Janela's, you know, stones about, you know, how Roethlisberger really took him down. And he did. I mean, Peyton played beautifully. He's just playing really good. You know, he looks trim too. I tell you, yeah, I haven't seen him, you know, and Chris, I'll send you these pictures, but you know, I, I haven't seen him look that, you know, that, that fit in the off season in a, in a while. And I, you know, I mean, he just looks really good right now. So Look out for look out for our boys, the Stillers this year. I mean, I think I think we're gonna see good things. Yeah, my fingers crossed, my friend. I'm hoping this is the you know this is the year. Time's running out with Ben, so hopefully they can it get is, past the is, Patriots and this is the year. Yeah, yeah someone needs so to Eric, let's switch gears a little bit. I want to get your thoughts on what we saw this year at the U.S. Open. I had Peter Kessler on the show a couple of weeks ago and he said it would have been a great tournament if you could have taken the leaderboard you know after Friday's round and turned it upside down since some of the best players in the world were on the wrong side of the cut list what do you think you know why do you think I should say Eric we saw you know Dustin Johnson Jason Day Rory McIlroy to name just a few play so poorly while so many other guys that we're not usually accustomed to seeing at the top of the leaderboard end up uh you know obviously with 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 Kepka winning it on you know on Sunday but why why were the best players some of the top you know five players in the world at the bottom while some of these guys were at the top of that leaderboard what are your thoughts man I, if i could answer that i'd be in vegas but i mean it's a great question and I, I i just can't explain it you know i mean you know when you look at rory he's just been putting so poorly i mean it's just it's uh, i think my son Grady could putt better than him right at the moment but you know he just he doesn't look like he's on form. Jason Day, I mean, what have we heard from him lately? You really haven't heard anything from him. And Dustin Johnson, since, you know, his little uh, whoopsie at the Masters, uh, we really haven't heard a ton from him either. So the, n- none of them were in super great form kind of coming in. I, and, you know, um, I, I guess I'd go even further on it. I mean, you know, I, was that a U.S. Open golf course? I don't think so. I mean, I think the USGA is having a little identity crisis. They can't, they can't figure out what they are. You know, I mean, it, 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 in my opinion, that's, you know, might not be anybody else's, but it's mine. And, uh, you know, we go from Aaron Hills and then we had Oakland and which, you know, listen, if you want resistance to scoring, do exactly what we did at Oakland. 25 yard fairways, 23 yard fairways. You know, fastest greens in the world and, and nice rough. And the guys will not shoot, you know, whatever Kepka shot, 18 under, whatever it was. I mean, he, he was, it was a joke. And 60 yards fairway. How about the one where Kepka hit it? He goes, Oh, wow. It's a, wow. That's really offline. Oh, that's all right. There's fairway 60, 58 yards wide. I went, Oh my God. You got to be kidding me. You got to be kidding me. 58 yards wide fairway. That's a joke. That's not an open. That's a Milwaukee open. And I think that. I think Johnny Miller has a really good point. I know some people blasted him for his arrogance, but I mean to tell you, 60-yard fairway on an open? Come on, that's not an open. You know, I, I I love the 63. I'm I'm proud for, you know, that 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 he shot it, and you know, he's a great young man. But it's no open. And and Johnny Miller's right. It's listen when people are shooting what they're doing and. And killing that place like they were, that's not, that's a Milwaukee Open. That's not a U.S. Open. And, and they did it two years ago, or I should say three, but you know, when Speeds won out in Oregon, I mean, that didn't look like a U.S. Open either. It, it, the, you know, from, I wasn't there at either one, but it looked very hard from a, you know, a spectator standpoint. And, and I really do. I feel like the USGA is kind of losing it. Now they're going back to Shinnecock, which will be a great test. And, 
And if they can, you know, keep the place, you know, healthy and perfect, and I know it will be. Jack Druga is a great man. He's their, you know, head golf professional and director of golf. He's just a great man, and 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 it'll be good. But you know, they're throwing some oddball golf courses in there, and and I don't get. It. I really don't, Chris. That's my opinion. And, and and to that end, Eric, you know, based on you know you, you know your years of experience being around the USGA and Mike Davis, and you yeah. know, obviously your time yeah. there at at Oakmont, do you expect that, you know, the, the players are going to see a much different golf course? I mean, obviously, it's a different venue, but, you know, do, is the USGA going to be under pressure to, to return to, you know, with Kepka shooting 16 under par, that, you know, Shinnecock is going to be as hard a golf course as they can possibly make it to try to get, get a score of even par out of next year's winner? Well... I, you know, yeah, the answer is there, there's no question. They're going to say, oh, no, we would we'd never do that. But, yes, the answer is yes. I mean, they would. And uh, and I think they have to. Uh, you know, and first of all, I, I've been through – I was so lucky to be there. My first internship was in 94 at Oakmont. So I've seen four Oakmonts at, o- at, at, at Oakmont, four U.S. Opens at Oakmont, and it's been incredible to see it. Now, in 2007, the golf course was perfect. The rough was really high. The players started complaining, and the USGA whacked the rough on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, or Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday morning. And and that's a true story. And they did the same thing here. They did the same thing in 16. I mean, the golf course was borderline. It was the rough was almost like a pitch out rough. You know, what I mean, it was that deep. Players started complaining. They cut it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And all our members are like, hey, we've been playing in that for months, and you're doing that. You're cutting it because some guys are complaining. I can't believe it. But, you know, I mean, and maybe they had a good point, reason to do it. But, you know, when you are when you have an open like that and you have a venue that's so strong like a, an Oakmont or a Shinnecock or a Wingfoot, you know, when you got – you don't really have to do anything crazy to the golf courses. Just, you know, I've said it for years. If you don't want them to shoot 20 under, narrow the fairways, grow the rough, make the the, the putting surface firm and fast, and they're they're not going to do it. Period. I mean, they just you can overpower some golf courses, but I just don't know that you can overpower an open necessarily, especially if the rough is high. You know, but you know, a 60 yard fairway at, at Aaron Hills that didn't seem like an open to me. And Eric, you make an an interesting point. Voice of the players, right? Are we starting to see the players seize more control of you know how tournaments are structured, how courses are lay out, laid out? We've you know we obviously heard you know the, the players have an uprising, if you will, you know with respect to the Ryder Cup a few years ago. Some things have changed, you know maybe for the better because we obviously won the last Ryder Cup. But are you starting to see the players seize more influence on how golf courses are set up, how majors are set up, how things play out? Well, I think they are. I think they are, and I think that uh, – and maybe um, maybe they should have some control over it, a little bit. You know, I mean, the PGA Tour is their tour, and maybe they should have some control on how it goes. And, uh, you know, I mean, they are the they are the professionals that are playing it. You know, I, I think it's funny the U.S. are a bunch of amateurs, and then, you know, they're telling all the pros what to do. And I kind of giggle at that. I go, wait a minute. This, 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 hold on a second here. Amateurs? Uh, all right. But, uh, you know, and uh, so, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I just I think they should have a little control, but I don't think it should be to where, you know, the control is that they, they take away from 
what we have done, you know, like in an open. I mean, Oakmont would have it, you know, I mean, and to see DJ shoot what he shot, I think he was four under, you know, at Oakmont in 16, it was incredible. And if the rough was even higher like it would have been, I don't think anyone would have broke par. But, you know, we'll never know because they, you know, they started grousing. And, you know, when they start grousing a lot and enough of the right people start grousing, then they're going to start, you know, cutting the, cutting the fairways, you know, cutting the rough down. So Rick, let's let's look ahead. We got the Open Championship coming up here at Royal Birkdale. In, in your mind, who who are some of the guys that you think are favorites to to hold the Claire Jug this year? <clears throat> well, you know, I mean, we talked about it earlier. There, I just I just don't know that the the really the really huge guys are in great form. You know, I mean, Jason Day is kind of a mystery right now. I mean. Uh, Dustin Johnson's a little bit of a mystery. Uh, Rory is a big mystery with his putting woes, um, which is, you know, it's incredible to see that, you know, when you see a guy that's, you know, kind of bounced around from putting instructors from Stockton to other guys and, and, uh, man, with that talent not to be able to make it is hard. Um, and, you know, I think great putting leads to major championships. That's period in the story. You know, I, I just don't think you can out ball strike them in a, in a British Open because you're going to have fight the weather. So, you know, I love John Rums, the state of his game. I mean, we'd have to think that he's in there. I think you'd have to see Rory. He's playing great over at, uh, at Dundonald Links in the Scottish Open. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it should be, uh, um, I'm not saying it's going to be quite like the, the U.S. Open, but I think you're going to see some. I think you're going to see some old salts in there. I think you're going to, you know, and that's what you always see in there. You know, you always see like Tom Watson that, you know, plays, you know, better than his age, you know, and 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 in a in a major setting. Uh, so it should be a really interesting one to see. I don't know. I mean, I kind of like Ricky. Um, I think the state of his game is really good. I think his mental framework is good right now. I don't think there's too much scar tissue up there right at the moment. And uh, and I, I I think I'm probably putting it on Ricky and John Rahm. That's my two that's my two calls. You got it over there in Europe. Put the pounds on those two. <laughs> and Eric, as an instructor, and you talk about the struggles that we're seeing Rory have, you know, with his putting. When, when, when you look at, you know, someone was, you know, was to come to you with a very similar type of situation and say, you know, you know, gee, Eric, I, I, you know, my putting is way off. I can't seem to make anything or I'm not consistent and it doesn't matter if it's a five footer or a 25 footer. When you look at that, is, is it his stroke? Is it his mental approach? Is, does it get in your head? And now all of a sudden it leads to, you know, the yips or other sorts of things. What do you think is a problem when, when someone is struggling as badly as Rory is, uh, on the greens? Well, you know, Chris, I'll tell you, I think it's, I think it's a little bit of both. I think, uh, well, it's a lot of both. And I think it's, I think it starts with a little mechanics. And then I think what happens, and I, and I'll tell you what, I, when I was playing on tour, um, I had this little high right virus. Like once around, I'd hit a, I'd hit one that looked like it was 50 yards offline. I mean, it, I, it was, and it was going right and I knew it was going right and I knew it was going right before I ever did it. So, I mean, part, it was part mechanical. But then it started to get in my brain. Um, in college, I had the yips. I mean, in college, I, I mean, I couldn't make a, I couldn't make a three footer for a spell there for about six months. And then I've gone, I had the bunker yips. I mean, I've had some serious yips in my career and I, and I, I've gone to a lot of sports psychologists. I'm not one, but I've been to a ton of them. And from me, from my playing perspective, you can get out of them. I think it's partly 
it's partly mechanical. You're doing something wrong, which leads to a mental block, and you start you start really uh, fearing uh, failure. And when you feel, you know, I mean, when you're having when you're having mental problems, you're either fearing success or you're fearing failure. And most fear failure. And when that starts to happen, your brain does some really crazy stuff. And and I've seen it, and I've I've gone through it, and I'm telling you, you can get out of it. You know, if you got the yips out there, people, please don't worry. You're gonna get out of them. You can get out of. Them. You got to get a little bit of mental. You got to get a little better, uh, you know, physical technique. And we got to figure out why you're having that block, which is making you struggle so much. But you can get out of a yip. I don't care what anyone says. You can't. You can. You have to fix the the mechanical problem. And then mentally, you know, it's it's a funny story, but um, the greatest way I've ever heard it explained is that the the thoughts and this from Fred Shoemaker, the thoughts in my head are like, you know, the, the bubbles on the bottom of a champagne glass. They're coming up. They're always saying, "Oh my God, you're gonna hit miss a three footer. You're gonna miss a three footer. You're gonna miss a three footer." Oh my God, uh, the, my I, 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 it's for the match. Whoa, hold on a second. All those things are coming up in your brain. You're having this little internal conversation. And they're never telling you you're the best player of all times. You're the greatest. You're Ali. They're not saying that. They're saying all the bad stuff. And, you know, I mean, Fred Schumacher would talk to me how to, you know, um, well, basically acknowledge what's going on upstairs. And, you know, I'd say, hey, thanks for sharing that. But I intend to keep the face real square on this three-footer. And I'm going to take a nice backswing. And, boom, I'm going to hold my finish and have that putter face right at the hole. And and all of a sudden, those bubbles start flattening, and that's the only way I can explain it. And I'm promising you that you can get out of a yip, period. End of story. So, you know, to take that a step further, Eric, and, you know, my son, you know, is a junior golfer. He play, He's playing in, you know, some junior tournaments this summer. He plays on his high school team. But to that point, you know, and it's not just for junior golfers. It's for all of us, right? We all have those negative thoughts and, and, and those sorts of things. But... You know, what, what are, you know, some advice, you know, for players for when we're out there and those negative thoughts start to creep into our minds and, you know, we get nervous, you know, whether it's, you know, we're, we're nervous about playing in a tournament, we're new to tournament golf and we start to doubt ourselves when we go to the first tee or we make a bad swing or we have a bad hole. And now we, you know, how, how do we put that behind us? and calm those nerves and get rid of those thoughts and, and be able to, you know, move on and play better golf. What advice do you give to not only junior golfers, but to all of us when those things start to happen? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I tell, I tell the kids I work with, go have fun, play golf. You, you, you play golf. Okay. Go have fun at it. You don't play golf because you want to play in this tournament and then play good here and then get into that tournament and then get into that tournament. That's not why you play golf. That's worrying about results, not worrying about execution. Go enjoy. Stay in the moment. Stay there. Have fun. Stop worrying about the stats. I mean, everybody, I get so tired of these kids that come to me and say, well, i got to play good in this one, i got to play good in that one, then I'll get in USG, AJJ, and this one and that one. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second. No, no, no. Go play the one you're playing. I don't care if it's the Hershey Bar Open. Go play it and play great and enjoy it and have fun and learn how to win. And then, you know, if you worry, stop worrying about the execution. You know, I'll I, I tell you, we, we, we got lucky enough to go on the field. Uh, Clint Hurdle had my sons, my twins, uh, Max and Riley, their team, 
down on the field the other day and we got to watch batting practice and Clint came over and we were right behind the cages. I mean, it was awesome, Chris. I was down there on the field. It was so much fun. And, and Clint said something very similar. He said, uh, you know, he said, how you guys doing? It's like, yeah, yeah, we want some. We want some. He goes, well, stop worrying about it. He goes, go out there and play and have fun. And I thought, oh my God, there's a novel idea. How, where have I heard that before at my house? But, uh, you know, I mean, it is true. Like, hey, yeah, imagine that. Uh, or, huh. So uh, my kids are looking at me like, uh, that's the first time I've ever heard that. And I'm like, hmm, I don't think so. But anyways, um, <laughs> they, you know, I mean, Clint, Clint was like, go out and play. Play it all. Don't stop worrying about the stats. Go out and play in the outfield. Go play in the infield. Learn the game. Play everywhere. And when he said that, I thought, man, isn't that something? And, you know, the greatest players of all times – they have a bulletproof mindset. Look at Jack Nicholas. I mean, he never thought he missed a putt ever. And you're like, well, wait a minute, Jack. You missed the one and whatever. And, and I think I've told you that story with Mike Malaska. He said, Jack, you know, how many putts do you think? What do you think your percentage was inside of 10 feet? And Jack said, I made them all. And Mike's like, well, wait a minute. I, no, I mean, you had to miss something, Jack. What do you think it was? He goes, I, I made them all. And he goes, Jack, you missed the one in 86. And then you hit the spike mark now and they and he said mike that's what i'm talking about i hit that ball exactly where the face was so i made it the green didn't let it go in now now that doesn't <laughs> sound like reality to most folks but to jack nicholas that makes all the sense in the world and and i think that you know we i think we get so fragile out there and i don't know why i think you know listen we are all gonna make awful swings we're gonna hit bad shots and you know what we're also going to hit some really good ones. And you got to have it like water off a duck's back. You hit a bad shot, Chris, I'm telling you, tell your son, he hits a bad shot, great. So what? Learn how to get it in the hole from there. And, you know, we don't see – does that mean that no tour players ever hit a bad shot in, my, in their life? Oh, my God, they hit it all over the map. But what they do know how to do is let it go go to the next one and figure out how to pitch it in or chip it in or whatever they need to do to bunker it in. I mean, the greats have a bulletproof mindset. They, 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 they will not give in to frailty. They will not give in to being fragile. And they don't care about success or failure. Greatest one, I mean, the Canadian Open, Tiger Woods, 216 out of the bunker. He's over in the right bunker. All the commentators in there, oh, 218 looks like he's got a layup here. Uh, hold on, Doug. Wait a minute. He's aiming at, whoa, he's aiming at the hole. Wait a minute. Whoa. Boom. Six iron. Right over the flag. Never looked like he was afraid of success or failure. And and it was the greatest, I mean, maybe the greatest 10-year stretch we've ever seen. Nicholas is hands down the best. You can't tell me he's not. Tiger had the best 10-year run that we've ever seen, no question, and I won't debate that. But, you know, Jack's the best of all times. And neither one of them ever looked like they were fearing success or failure. You know, I mean, I don't want to bring this into Jordan, but, you know, you look at Jordan and the Masters a couple of years ago and how fidgety he was last year. And, or well, it would be two years ago now because this year's Masters. But, you know, when he dunked in the water on 12 and he just looked so fidgety the whole week. And it was like, man, you know. I, listen, I know you're playing for the Masters here, but my man, you got to freewheel it here a little bit. I mean, and he just looks like a jumpy player, you know. And there's there's people that look like that, and there's people that look like Tiger, that that nothing faces them. It could be weather, wind, situation. It, they just don't care. And and Jack was exactly like that. I you never saw 
I never saw Jack look like he was afraid of anything. I mean, he just didn't, you know, I mean, and I'm sure he was. That doesn't mean that he wasn't nervous. He just wasn't going to give in to the thoughts. You know what I mean? Right. Well, Eric, before we let you go, remind our listeners about how they can, you know, follow you on your website, online, and then also on social media as well. Yeah, thanks, Chris. It's uh, EricJohnsonGolf.com and Nemecolon.com, and uh, you know, I Twitter a little bit. I don't. I need to do more. I'm, and I'm on Facebook at uh, Eric Johnson Golf, and you can look me up. But you know, it's all fun stuff. But you know, I always say it. Thanks to the troops out there. You know, we're uh, we're rooting for you. Keep your head down. Shoot straight. You know, anyone that threatens the United States of America deserves to meet their creator. But you know, we. We wouldn't have this country without the military. So, Chris, I just I appreciate you know what they're what everyone's doing out there. Ah, uh, we I appreciate you saying that, Eric. And I also appreciate you getting up early and and coming back on the show and and being as great as you always are. Thank you, Eric. Enjoy your time out at Lake Tahoe, and uh, hopefully we get the uh, privilege of having you back on the show again real soon, my friend. Yeah, buddy, we got to get you in and We're ready. Shepherd's Rock, Absolutely. Rock is waiting for you. <laughs> Uh, I can't wait to get there. So we may have, help me work that out, guys, because it's a fantastic looking place. Well, thanks, buddy. I appreciate you, pal. Thanks. All right, take care, Eric. Right, that is uh, top 100 instructor Eric Johnson. And folks, they don't come better than that guy. I always have such a great time talking to Eric, and uh, he's a ten times better person than he is a golf instructor. And he's a top 100 instructor, so you know how great he is at golf. So look forward to catching up again uh, with Eric hopefully real soon. I've got my next guest, Ed Byman, hanging on the line. We'll get to Ed on the other side of this station break. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGASuperstore.com. Now, back to you, Chris. And now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Ed Byman. Let me give you some background on Ed. He is originally from Kingston, New York, which is about 90 miles north of New York City in between the city and Albany. He was an accomplished junior golfer. We're just a a few days away from the uh, 50th anniversary of his victory in the New York JCs Golf Tournament back on July 29, 1968. Played his uh, college golf at the University of Connecticut, and he graduated with his degree in math and economics. He played professionally on several international tours and earned his tour card back in June of 1978. He won the Mexico Mexico Open in 1974, outdueling defending champion Lee Trevino, who he was paired with over the final two rounds. He won the Canadian Tour Players' Cup in 1975, played on the PGA Tour from 1978 to 1980. He is now the founder and CEO of Global Value Commerce, which is the leader in both sales for used golf equipment and the authority for the valuation of used golf equipment. And I'm excited to have him with me here this morning on Next on the Tee. Good morning, Ed. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, hey, Chris, how are you? Thanks for having me. So, Ed, I I wanted to start uh, our conversation by going back to that 1974 Mexico Open. Like I said, you were were paired with Lee Trevino in the final two rounds of that event. Trevino won that event the year before and the year after you did. It had to be exciting going head-to-head against him, not only because of his talent, but I'm assuming – it was a little difficult because he was the crowd favorite there in that tournament. Talk about what you remember about uh, playing and winning that event in 74. Yeah, that was, uh, 
that was an awful lot of fun. I thought at the time it was the beginning of a great career, and it turned out to be my career highlight, kind of. But, uh, you know, I had turned pro the year before and and um, got down there to Mexico. I had won the Mexican National Amateur as well a couple years prior to that. Uh, so I got in the, the Mexican Open, went down, was practicing, and, and Trevino was on the practice tee. And I just got watching the beat of his swing. And um, it was just, you know, it just, for some reason, I just sort of gravitated to that and how free it was and how committed. And um, it, it was just a powerful action. And I just sort of started feeling that motion in my own swing. And uh, the first day I, I shot 65, I think. And um, six, I think it was 65, 60 nine, something like that, and then uh, was paired with him the final two days, which was an, an awful lot of fun. I mean, it was uh, – he's such a great player, and he did not putt well that week, okay? Just put, no question about that. He hit the ball so beautifully. And um, I remember on the first hole we played, um, it was a little par four. We hit it down downhill a little bit, and it got a wedge in, and that was a false front, and then the pin was up on a little knob. And he hit a wedge about 10 feet high that hit into the, the false front, skipped up, checked, and lifted out onto the hole, sat about two inches from the hole. And he looked at me and said, not many people in the world have that shot. You know? So I <laughs> said, man, I believe it, brother. That was awesome. So I started, I got it up there on the, you know, about, I pulled it a little bit, but I was, you know, only about 10 or 12 feet. And I two-putted, he made his birdie. And then um, we both parred the next hole, and then I made four birdies in a row. You know, and I was just feeding off of his energy and his rhythm, the beat of his swing. And um, so anyway, so I, I, I played really well that day, beat him. Uh, I think I was leading by maybe, I'm trying to remember, a couple shots after the first two days, and then and then five or six after the third day. I really played really well, 68, I think. And then the last day paired with him as well. Didn't play quite as well, but good enough to get it to the house. And, uh, well, you know, uh, you, listening to your uh, introduction, it brought that back a lot of uh, memories, you know, of my playing career. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. But uh, thanks for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go, let's fast forward one year. You, you won the Canadian Tour Players Cup in 75. Take us through what you remember about that tournament. Well, the best part about that whole season was uh, you probably know a guy named Mo Norman. Absolutely. Mo Norman is one of the greatest strikers of the ball ever. I got to know Mo the year before that, and um, that particular year, Mo and I traveled across the country together, starting in New Brunswick, all the way across the country, playing in these tournaments. So we would practice every day. And, uh, you know, he was, he's an unbelievable striker of the ball, right? I mean, he would hit, oh gosh, man, he'd hit 300 balls and they would literally be on a, on a blanket, you know, four irons and two, four woods and what didn't matter what he hit. It was just phenomenal. And again, just playing with someone like that all the time, you, your expectation goes up. And, um, I didn't play with him in that particular tournament. But I uh, was really hitting the ball well, and, um, uh, you know, I think I won by several shots. But um, and, then, and I played really well on that tour that whole time. I, uh, I a number of top tens and whatever. But uh, Canada is such a – I don't know if you've ever been up there, Chris, but it's a beautiful country. 
I mean, it, it really is. In the summertime up, it was just spectacular. Um, but the Manitoba Open, man, that's right. I, I, that was a, that was a great victory for me. And uh, again, just another step down the road of trying to get on the PGA Tour. And you know, Ed, when you earned your tour card in, in 1978, and uh, you know, I've talked to several players. Mark Wiebe talked about this a couple of weeks ago here on the show about the pressure at tour school being way more stressful than any tournament, you know, let that, that uh, most of the players that I've talked to more pressure there than anywhere they've ever played. Was that like that? Was it like that for you? And, and how many times did you have to go through Q school in order to earn your playing card? Yeah, well, Mark's exactly right. I mean, it, it is just unbelievable. It, it just sets up your whole life moving forward as a golfer, especially back when I did it back in the, in the seventies. There, uh, you know, it was very difficult. Uh, even once you qualified, you had to go out and qualify on Monday. So it was a little different than it is today. But, uh, just to give you a little framework, I actually tried many times to qualify for the tour three years in a row prior to making it. I missed at the national school by one shot. Wow. <laughs> so that was almost uh, driving me crazy. And then, uh, uh, finally, that year is in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the, uh, I think it was at the, the college, the university course there, uh, qualified. And, uh, my brother Bob was, uh, went, got through that school as well that same time. So that was a great, uh, a great moment for the Bynum family. That's for sure. And then, you, you know, looking ahead, you know, you get out on tour, you finished, uh, tied for 30th at the 1979 Western Open with a pretty good group of players. Oh, by the way, you ended up tied with Andy Bean, Bobby Clampett, Dale Douglas, Mark Lye, Bill Rogers, and Craig Stadler at that event. And if it hadn't been for a second round 79, who knows what might have happened for you because Larry Nelson won it that year and he finished the winning score was two under par. Your other three rounds, 72, 72, 73. So, and there were a lot of high scores in that second round. So I'm, I'm guessing it was a pretty tough day out there for that second round of that event. But take us through what you remember about the Western Open that year. Probably the biggest takeaway is we played at Butler National, and that was a Fazio design, and uh, boy, what, a, what an unbelievably difficult golf course. I mean, it was tight, it well bunkered, uh, the greens were quick. It, it was just a really, really a, a ball strikers golf course. You really had to hit it well. And... um I got off to a good start of really hitting the ball well that uh, that tournament. But uh, the second day, I'm trying to remember now what the heck happened there, but I, I limped in. I think I, I played the last several holes. Um, gosh, I think it was like four or five over just as I was coming in the last three or four holes, just stumbled in and made the cut and was still felt like I was playing well. And that third round, I, I, I played a really nice round and passed. That was maybe the toughest day was the third round. I passed a ton of people uh, to get uh, back in the event. But um, Chicago's a great golf town. Uh, and, and you know, the, the funny thing about the tour, man, is, is that every day somebody is shooting really, really low. It, it, it's phenomenal how many good scores. Uh, I mean, I remember traveling to Hawaii playing out there, and I shot a couple under, and, uh, you know, three under makes the cut. I remember playing the Byron Nelson one year, um, teeing it up there. I, I was like the third to last tee time that day. It was raining like crazy the whole day. And before I teed up, some people had already finished, and somebody shot 63 out there. And I thought, man, you know, you're looking at this day, raining sideways. You think, boy, if I can get in at par, it's a heck of a round, you know. And 
and some guy shoots like eight or nine under. It's just phenomenal. So that's my biggest takeaway of the tour is just how uh, talented everybody is. You really have to shoot low. So, Ed, let's fast forward to, to what you're doing now. You're the founder and CEO of Global Value Commerce. Talk about what the company does and where the idea came from to, to get into that business. Yeah. Yeah, we, we really were, was founded on the premise of trying to bring structure and stability to the pre-owned marketplace, pre-owned golf equipment. And um, it was really I, – I had a sales agency in North and South Carolina – after I got off the tour, and I would see all of these, you know, used clubs, pre-owned clubs sitting around people's shops uh, because they just couldn't sell them. And um, and then in 1995, I had started a business um, in the computer business, and we went to a trade show, and all they were talking about was the Internet. So I got introduced to the Internet really early on. And uh, after a couple of years, I just put those two ideas together. Um, and founded the company trying to bring technology and e-commerce to the to the space and bringing this structure to the pre-owned marketplace. So we developed a price book. Um, now it's the PJ Value Guide with our uh, uh, acquisition of uh, three balls. And, um, you know, it's really the authority voice on pre-owned pricing in the world. And uh, we, we use, uh, you know, a lot of different ways. Uh, we have an algorithm that we use to calculate the pricing on pre-owned clubs. And it's, it's tied to, of course, what they're selling for is new, how old they are, the condition, all of those factors go into it. So we, we started in, 19, I think it was 2000, 2001, officially we founded the company. And we've grown steadily uh, since then and um, really, I think, have, have, have helped um, – the golf industry immensely. You know, we we do get uh, clubs from the manufacturers. All their consumer trial product comes back to us. So we allow them to be very aggressive in terms of getting demos out in the field, getting rentals out in the field, um, anything that that helps someone take a, a, a try a new 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 equipment. And then we support also uh, some retailers, uh, many retailers, many golf professionals out there. Uh, use our uh, PG Value Guide to take trade-ins. We support uh, Dick Sporting Goods and Golf Galaxy and Academy Sports uh, to allow them to take trades. And the data that we that we have uh, been able to uh, gather uh, when we started was that for every dollar taken in trade, five or six dollars is spent at the register. So we're really helping the sale of new equipment by by uh, you know allowing people to take trade-ins in unlimited quantities that come back to us. And then of course we go direct to consumer. Our uh, flagship site is globalgolf.com, and of course we uh, it's it's a, really the largest selection of pre-owned clubs in the world on that site, and and um, and we sell new as well. But uh, but our really our our uh, focus, if you will, is pre-owned equipment. And we do take trades on that site. And, um, uh, you know, as I said, we've been able, fortunate enough to grow consistently every year, even through some tough economic times uh, when the golf industry uh, probably hasn't been growing, maybe even uh, retracting a little bit, shrinking a little bit in terms of the number of players. Still a very healthy industry, uh, but uh, but not uh, like it was in the late 90s where, where you know, it was just flourishing and the industry was growing 15% a year. 
So we haven't had that kind of growth here since we started, but we've been been very fortunate to be in e-commerce and then to be in that value side of the business in pre-owned equipment. And so, Ed, for for folks, you know, for our listeners, right, they're, they're you know contemplating, you know, trading in their equipment on, you know, whether it's new equipment or you know some pre-owned equipment. Talk about the process that they can go through in order to do that. You bet, you bet. Well, let's say that you started uh, with the PGA Value Guide. So you went on there and, uh, and and got online, and you can look up your club on that site. Okay, whatever it is, there's you know I don't I can't remember how many. I think it's 15 or 20,000 clubs are on there, but it goes back 15, 20 years kind of thing, a long time. So you go on there, you find your particular club, and there's a a sort of a rating system on there. And, um, you know, good, better, best, for lack of a better way to describe it. And and then once you've got that valuation, you are then prompted either to take it to a PGA professional if you choose to, uh, you, you may have a club that you're a member at and take it in and print off that value and bring it in and, and, uh, that PGA pro will, will honor that price. Um, uh, and he'll send that club on to us and we'll, we'll pay him for that. Uh, you, you, uh, you can, um, uh, go and send it to uh, globalgolf.com and get a gift certificate to shop. If you're looking to buy something else online, you can, uh, you can trade it in that way. And uh, then also we do have uh, the ability to, if you just want to trade it in for cash, you can do that as well on the PGA uh, value guide. So it's pretty intuitive once you do it. Once we get the club, we evaluate it and uh, check it out, make sure it's in good working order, that it's not dented, that the shaft isn't cracked, and make sure that it's a it's a quality pre-owned club. Once we validate that, then we... Um, Either issue the credit or uh, pay the cash, whatever whatever uh, method you you've chosen. So it's pretty intuitive because once you get get going on it. So Ed, before we let you go, let our listeners know about you know you've you've talked about globalgolf.com, but how can they follow you, follow the companies that you know that you're involved with, and the things that you guys are doing, whether it's online or over social media. Yeah, yeah, we have a presence. Uh, we have a blog, of course, that uh, we're very active in. We are on uh, Facebook as well. Um, we are. We have fortunately been in the uh, in the news a little bit more. We we have a, um, a campaign with the Golf Channel that we're starting uh, advertising. So I think people will 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 learn more about GlobalGolf.com. It's interesting, Chris, that. Uh, we did a study a couple years ago and 50% of the the golfers out there didn't know they could trade in clubs. So we think there's a lot of latent demand for, um, getting, uh, you know, pre-owned clubs from the marketplace. And we're really helping, uh, the golf consumer turn those old clubs, those pre-owned clubs into currency that he can go spend for whatever he wants to do, whether it's another golf club or a shirt, shoes, bag, whatever he wants to buy. So, um, yeah, come in and, and give us a try. I think you'll be really impressed with the, the way the site works and, and, and certainly be able to uh, use those uh, dollars from pre-owned clubs to improve your game. So we appreciate it, Chris. Thank you so much. It, absolutely. That's great stuff. Thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to, to come and, uh, and, and share those stories. Fascinating stuff about what you're doing you know, with, through you know, Global Value Commerce and, and GlobalGolf.com and all the great stuff that you guys are doing. I hope you'll come back. 
again soon, Ed, and share more of you know, not only your stories about the, the time that you went out on tour, but really talk about you know the great stuff that you guys are doing to help the the golf equipment market you know continue to expand and grow because it's really great stuff. Thank you so much, Chris. I, I really enjoy coming back and uh, spending more time with you. I appreciate it so much. All right, take care, Ed. All the best to you and your family. Bye bye now. That is Ed Byman. Again, the, the name of the company is Global Value Commerce. You can find them online at globalgolf.com. They're doing some really great stuff. And to his point, you know, we all have. I know I got a garage full of uh, of uh, pre you know used equipment and things like that that uh, that I could use to find out the the value for and to do some other things with. And you know, the downstream effect is you know people have an opportunity to to continue to use the, those uh, golf clubs and the, the golf equipment that you know that that you don't need anymore. Somebody else does. So it's great stuff. They're doing great things, and I look forward to having Ed back on the show again real soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, uh, Dr. Bob Jones IV, I want to give a shout-out to our good friend Randy Manier and the great folks up at the Salt Creek Golf Retreat. Let's hear a word from our announcer, Joe Lajanusa, about what a great place that it really is. If you're looking for a great place for your annual golf outing, a weekend golf getaway, or just a round of golf with your buddy, then Salt Creek Golf Retreat is just what you're looking for. Centrally located in Nashville, Indiana, just south of Indianapolis and west of Cincinnati, this challenging but fair 18-hole golf course appeals to all skill levels, and its scenic views of rolling hills and tree-lined fairways are sure to make golfing memories for years to come. Owned and operated by former Purdue and New York Giant fullback Randy Manier, Salt Creek Golf Retreat offers stay and play packages that include golf and a fully furnished one or two bedroom condo. After your round, be sure to stop by the 19th Old Sports Bar and Restaurant for great food, fun, and drinks. Randy and his staff will treat you like family. For more information, log on to saltcreekgolf.com. That's saltcreekgolf.com. Or give them a call at 812-558-5944. Salt Creek Golf Retreat. Start making your golfing memories today. Yeah, Randy and his family and the staff are all outstanding, folks, as are the golf course, the 19th hole sports bar that they have right there on site in their uh, condos as well. Check them out online at saltcreekgolf.com. I also want to remind you about our friends at Orange Whip, makers of the Orange Whip Trainer. And, folks, if you haven't checked out the Orange Whip yet and you're looking for a great way to loosen up before your round or improve your club head speed, then you need to check out the Orange Whip. Folks, there isn't a better way to get prepared for your round of golf than by swinging the Orange Whip. My father's 73 years old. He plays five days a week. He's using the Orange Whip to loosen up before his rounds. It's helping me get loose before my rounds as, as well as improving my club head speed. Take a look at what a great training aid that it is. And I wouldn't say it, folks, if I wasn't using it myself. Go online to see for yourself at orangewhiptrainer.com. All right, now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Dr. Robert T. Jones IV, also known as Bob Jones IV, grandson of Bobby Jones. Let me give you some background 
on Dr. Bob. He was born and raised in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which is located in the very western part of the state near the New York state line. He now lives in Johns Creek, Georgia, which is just northeast of Atlanta. He studied at St. Uh, Minard uh, Seminary and School of uh, Theology. He graduated from the Georgia School of Professional Psychology. He has his bachelor's degree in English literature, a master's in divinity, and a doctorate in clinical psychology. He's working now as a sports psychologist, and I'm excited that he is with me this morning here on Next on the T. Good morning, Dr. Bob. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks, Chris. Glad to be with you today. How you doing? I'm fantastic, thank you. So, Good. Doc, almost everybody knows a little bit, you know, something about your grandfather, but what we don't know is enough about you. So I'd, I'd like to, you know, talk about, you know, the beginning of things for you. You know, your grandfather is associated with the state of Georgia, the city of Atlanta here, and obviously over in Augusta as well. But talk about growing up, your family, and how, do you, how you guys ended up in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. <laughs> well, after World War II, my father had fought in the army. He was in the first wave of the Italian occupation. And when he returned from, from World War II, he tried going to college. But like a lot of those guys who came back from the war, college just wasn't something that really did it for him. In fact, his most Probably his biggest accomplishment was taking the $100 in t for textbooks that my grandfather had given him, and then he would go buy his textbooks and then turn around and sell them to someone else and made 75 bucks for it. So based on that, my grandfather thought he probably would be better suited at business. My, my bub, bub, bub is what we called my grandfather. Bub uh, owned a couple of Coca-Cola bottling company, bottling plants, one of which was in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And he suggested to my father that he may want to go up there and run it for a couple of years until he figured out what he wanted to do. So dad went up there and stayed there for over 20 years. Wow. And that's and how your we father, got to Massachusetts. And, you know, as, as I was doing a little bit of research on your father, Doc, you know, he was a pretty good golfer in his own right, competed in three national amateurs, was the first alternate for the U.S. Open a couple of times. Yeah. Was, was it yeah. hard for him being Bobby Jones's son? And, you know, why, you know is that part of the reason that, uh, you know, the pressure of being – you know, Bobby Jones's son, was that part of the reason why, you know, we didn't see him play more golf? I think so. Um, you know, he always, he always thought of himself uh, as a very mediocre player. And at his peak, his handicap was either plus two or plus three. And so, you know, for him to play at that level, but yet when he would compare himself to his own dad, he just felt like he just did not measure up to. I do think that though that my father also shared Bub's desire that golf should be simply a game. And so um, I think I think that had a lot to do with why he never uh, why he never went to try to be professional or anything along those lines. But a lot of it, I think, does have to do with the pressure of being Bobby Jones, the third. You know, for me, it's not been as much of an issue. You know, the best I've ever done on a handicap is uh, minus three. So I'm just living proof that the gene pool dilutes over time. So <laughs> there you have it. Yeah, you know, and, and Doc, your grandfather and your father, they, they were very close, at least from the things that I've read. You know, talk about the phone line that you guys oh. had in your house that was really strictly for your grandfather. <laughs> 
Oh, it absolutely was. There, uh, there was a green slimline phone. When we lived in Massachusetts, there was a green slimline phone that used to sit uh, behind my father's easy chair in our den. And my two sisters and I were always instructed that whatever you do, you do not ever either make a call on or answer the green phone. It was an unlisted number, and the only person who had that number was my grandfather. And my grandfather, even though he was listed in the Atlanta phone book, had a private line in his home that only my father had. And that was a way that they could speak to each other. And they used to talk to each other uh, on a daily basis. When we finally moved to Nashville, uh, the green phone came with us. And again, the, the rule stayed in place. I think I spoke on the green phone maybe five times in my life, and that was when my father said, uh, "Come here, come here, come here, buddy, and talk to your grandfather." And that was it. I, I would, I, I would probably not be here today had I attempted to use the green phone. <laughs> and Doc, you know, sadly, you you lost your father very early on. He was only forty-seven. I did. You were sixteen, I believe, at the time. What did that right. loss do to you and your ability to understand, you know, just how to handle being a Jones? Oh, well, you know, it's 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 funny. It was a devastating loss. Uh, I had just come home from Christmas for Christmas vacation in 1973, and Dad got home at about nine o'clock from a Christmas party for a colleague of his, and I knew when he came in the door that he did not look. But I figured it was probably just something like the flu. But uh, he then had a massive heart attack and died. Um, you know, I, th I think that in some ways God is merciful on those things, those sorts of points, because if I had known how difficult uh, and how devastating his loss would have been, uh, it probably would have driven me over the, over the edge. But you know, fortunately, you just have to you just have to live your life one day at a time as best as you can. And I've been very blessed in my adult life. Um, you know, I've been very blessed to have. Uh, met several men who either knew my dad or that I just got to know during the course of business or things like that, who were able to provide for me a lot of the kinds of instructional moments that a young man would need from his father. But, uh, you know, it's funny. My dad died on December the 20th of 1973, which I guess now would be, what, almost well, this December, it'll be 44 years. And yet, to this day, there is not a day that goes by that I do not think about him. And uh, and there are still times where I can actually uh, imagine uh, what advice he would give in a given situation. Um, my father was a very interesting man, and I think the saddest part of him dying young is that the world, and especially the golf world, never got the chance to know what a tremendous man he really was. Uh, that would be the thing I would be more sad about than any difficulties that I've had to deal with. And to that end, Doc, you know, I mean, at 16 years old, did, did you understand, did you fully realize what it meant? You no. know, to be Bobby Jones' no. grandson, what it meant to be a Jones. How did you How did you end up no. coping and understanding what the <laughs> scope of that was? Well, you know, uh, I, there were a couple of things that I think were very pivotal in coming to an understanding of who my grandfather was. Uh, one was uh, 
one was when we released the Bobby Jones instructional films. Throughout most of my life, my grandfather was like two different people for me. There was the Bobby Jones that was in like the Thomas Stevens portrait that hangs at the USGA of the young athletic Jones. Um, and then there was the man that I knew who was, uh, during most of my life, struggling from a crippling illness, who by the time he died weighed about 75 pounds. And it was hard for me to connect those two people together until I saw the instructional films. And then when I saw them and I heard his voice coming out of basically the man in the Stevens portrait, um, it really started to click with me. And all of a sudden, a lot of the stories that my dad had told me over the years about Bub, all of a sudden, they started to make sense. And, and he became uh, more of a flesh and blood kind of person. Uh, over the last couple of years, I've started working on a book on my grandfather that will certainly talk about his sports psychology, but it will also talk more than that about how I have come to understand this man and what I believe that set him apart in a very realistic way from even some of the legend that has sprung up about around him. Uh, so it's been a very long process and, you know, a lot of it is come from in getting to know people that knew him, knowing people that knew my father, and really taking a look at exactly what did I learn from Bub, what did I learn from my dad. Um, and it was a considerable amount. Now, to be honest, it's been an interesting journey. You know, for a long time, I was very almost embarrassed to be the grandson of Bobby Jones. And, uh, Yet, you know, now I'm at a point in my life where I realize that it's probably one of the greatest honors I could possibly have. And I realize that I have a certain responsibility to share his story and to share his values um, with a coming generation. Because otherwise, if I don't do that, then we run the risk of him just becoming a sepia-toned photograph that hangs on the wall of your golf club. And I don't think I don't think I want that. I know my family does not want that, and I don't think it would be good for the golf world to lose who this man really was. And Doc, everyone who listens to this show knows that Augusta National is my favorite place on the planet. But I read. You, you've only played there twice. You shot 77, 78, and you don't have any desire to play there again. Is that accurate? Oh, that's no, that's not true. Uh, I, I've actually played there a few times. Um, I played in the 1970s, uh, right after, shortly after my dad died, and that's when I shot in the 70s there. Uh, a good friend of mine who's a member invited me over to play a few years ago, and uh, I did not play as well then, but I will say that, you know, I did par 12, birdie uh, 15, and then hit it to about two inches from the hole on number nine for birdie. So, I mean, I had my moments. And we were supposed to play the following year, but we got rained out. So I have played there. No, it's no, it's not, it's not that I would desire to play there again. It's that I would never want to impose myself on them to say that, you know, hey, I really want to come play. If I'm asked, I do it. But I'm, I, I was brought up to be more polite. <laughs> that was a bit of a misquote. <laughs> so, but you know, to take that a step further, you talk about invited me to play. You're not a member at Augusta National, right? 
No, no, I'm not. Uh, I belong to uh, the Atlanta Athletic Club, which is my grandfather's home club, and I'm also a member at Sage Valley Golf Club, which is in Graniteville, South Carolina, about 10 miles east of Augusta. So it would sort of beg the question, right? You know, your grandfather established Augusta National, but you're not a member there. Yep. Family's not a member there. Why? Uh, you know, I think, to be candid, uh, I, I don't spend much time worrying about why people don't do things. Uh, yeah. So I don't know that I would be – I don't know that I would be the person that would have the answer to that question. Uh, there's no one moment that we can – that I could certainly point to to say that is that. I think some of it may have had to do with the fact that um, my grandfather died in 1971. My father died in 1973, and he was a vice president of the club. And I think just what happened is that by the time life just carried its normal course, um, Augusta had kind of gone their direction. We had kind of gone ours. And that was that. That's as near as I can figure it. Um, that's, you know, and now we're to the point to where Bub has been gone, what, 46 years? Dad, 43? Um, a lot happens in institutions in that period of time. And so uh, that probably could explain it as best as anyone I know. I think I think you'd almost have to ask Augusta that question. I, that's, but that's as near as I can figure it. And Doc, I was here, here's something else I read. I don't know if it's true or not, but I, you know, I was surprised to learn that towards the end of your grandfather's life, there was tension between he and Clifford Roberts, and you know, tension between your father and Mr. Roberts. I, you know, back in 2003, Huge. Frank Turkinian, who was the director and producer of CBS Sports and their coverage, obviously of the Masters, wrote an article in Golf Digest about how. Clifford Roberts wanted your grandfather to resign from the club. Your grandfather wanted your father to be named president of the club, but uh, you know he sort of wasn't having it. Do you, do you know what happened well, to, to kind of split that relationship? Yes. Um, I think what it what had a lot to do with that is you had two very very forceful men uh, in Cliff and in my grandfather. These were men that were very used to getting their own way. I think as my grandfather's health declined, um, I mean, to a certain extent, I think it had to do with the fact that Cliff probably chafed under my grandfather's, uh, under the weight of my grandfather for some time. I mean, Cliff yeah. did a lot of powerful things at Augusta National. I mean, the tournament, to a large extent, uh, is as much a testimony to what Cliff did as it was to my grandfather. And I think that it would only be natural that Cliff would have some resentment towards uh, towards Bub about, you know, why am I not getting the attention for what I have contributed? Now, I could see a natural resentment there. Cliff also had a different idea for the direction of the club than did Bub. I think he saw it more as uh, a business kind of uh, environment, and Bub saw it more as a friendship kind of uh, almost and not a fraternity per se but uh but a but a place where like-minded people came together to really enjoy the game of golf and each other so you have two different views that were there um Cliff did resist for a number of years making my father a member at Augusta National, and uh, finally it came about only after my dad became a member only after a lot of uh, 
machinations and protests from other members. And my grandfather's ideal always was to have dad as the president of Augusta National. Cliff had a very stormy relationship with my father, but the breaking point came, but Frank was not right about saying that Cliff wanted Bub to resign from the club. Uh, that is not correct. Uh, however, Cliff did say to my father on a number of occasions that he wanted my dad to resign from the club, but dad never did. Um, and uh, they had some very heated discussions. Finally, I think the breaking point for my grandfather was um, – I think the breaking point for my grandfather came when Cliff kind of went behind my grandfather to CBS to get my grandfather taken off the telecast. That was kind of the last straw for my grandfather. I'm not sure that he ever went back to Augusta National after that. Um, but I mean, that was kind of, that was kind of the breaking point. But, you know, when we talk about that, I mean, that's all history and that's all pretty well documented. So I'm, I'm not really saying anything that people don't know. But I, I think there's a bigger thing that we tend to miss in the whole Bub Cliff discussion. There's a, I think there's a tendency that we want to have to say that, you know, Bub was the hero and Cliff is the villain. In other words, we want to see it in a very black and white kind of way. But the fact of the matter is the Masters Tournament would not be what it, what it is today if it weren't for that very unusual mix of people that came together when Bub and Cliff met. The, um, the things that make Augusta National what it is today would not be there if um, you uh, didn't have those two men coming together. They were both very, very necessary uh, parts of what has become one of the greatest institutions in, in, the, in, in the world of golf. And so I, I, I really would like to leave people with, the under, with this clear understanding. Bub needed Cliff every bit as much as Cliff needed Bub. And I think sometimes we tend to lose sight of that uh, with some of the inside baseball of the dynamics that uh, go on uh, between the two men. They each needed each other. The club needed both of them. And ultimately, they have each made their own contribution to the game and to the history of golf. Doc, a couple more before we let you go. Sure. Um, let's talk a little sure. sports psychology. And, and I read about yeah, a round. You talk about you know, playing at uh, Atlanta, Atlanta Athletic Club. And the article uh -huh. that I read, you were a seven handicap at the time. You get to yes. the sixth hole, even par one day. Talk about what happened over the next three <laughs> holes and how you felt once you got to the ninth tee. It was the greatest lesson in sports psychology I've ever had. I was playing the sixth hole at the athletic club, about a 365-yard par four, and I hit my, my approach shot into the hole to about two inches and made the putt for birdie. And I had played the first five holes at, uh, I, I think I was one, one over after five. So I was playing pretty well. So now I'm back to even. I got on the tee of the seventh hole, which is about 160-yard par three. The pin was cut just over a ridge where you couldn't see the hole. And I hit my shot. And a couple of the guys uh, standing behind the green on the cart getting ready to go to 8T, uh, all of a sudden they just went ballistic. They were just like, wow, I can't believe it. I went up there, knocked my ball into the hole. And uh, the I'd made a hole in one. So now I'm two under. And 
the guys are going nuts. I'm going nuts. Get on the eighth hole, sharp dog leg, par four, water on the left. Hit a nice drive out there. But I hit my, my second shot about 30, 35 feet from the hole. Uh, got a kind of a sweeping right to left putt, which uh, I then drained for birdie. So now I'm three under. And I stood on the ninth tee, and I learned something. It's the first time I'd ever had to deal with this. I had had such an adrenaline blast that I realized as I stood on the ninth tee that I was absolutely out of gas. And and as a result, I think I bogeyed nine, played poorly on the back nine because I just had no energy left. And I learned something very important psychologically, and this has been borne out with many of the athletes that I've worked with since then. And that is that one of the hardest things that a golfer or any type of athlete has to do is how do you manage your uh, emotional life in order to keep yourself in an optimal range of functioning? How do you get to the point where you can have a streak like that, where you go four under in three holes and have it not necessarily take you out of your game? Most of the time when I work with clients on sports, you know, a lot of these folks when they come in about golf for golf, they know an awful lot about the golf swing and they know an awful lot about um, about how to hit particular shots. But what they don't know is how to manage that six inch fairway that exists between the ears. And a lot of that has to do with proper thinking, but also emotional management. And uh, that so much of my work now focuses on helping people in those two particular areas. So, Doc, before we let you go, how can our listeners yeah. follow you, stay up to date with what you're doing, and reach out to you for help, whether it's you know sports psychology or otherwise? Well, the best way to get me at this point would be to contact me. Uh, contact me at my uh, office. Uh, that's uh, the Behavioral Institute of Atlanta in Sandy Springs. Uh, the uh, you can find it by going to. B I A and then the number one dot com. That will get people to me. I'm currently uh, putting together a professional Facebook page where people can find me. You can also find me at, uh, this is a long one, but it is Southern Crescent Psychology dot com. All right. Well, Doc, you know, I'm so fascinated by you and your life experiences. So much more I wanted to get into with you. I hope you'll come back sometime and share more oh. of your stories and your insights with us. I would love to, Chris. Thank you for having me on today, and I really I really appreciate it, and I hope, uh, hope your listeners have a good round of golf this weekend. I appreciate you saying that. Thanks, Doc. Catch up with you soon. All okay. the best to you and your family between All right. now and then. Thanks, Chris. You take care. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, Doc. That is uh, Dr. Bob Jones IV, and you want to talk about a man who's led a fascinating life and so many other things, like I said, that I wanted to get into with him uh, on the show. So hopefully we, we get the privilege of having him back on the show again real soon. Okay, now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is my next guest, Mitchell Lawrence. Let me give you some background on Mitchell. He is the older of twin brothers, four minutes older, by the way of uh, one of my all-time favorite guests, not only on this show, but people I've had the privilege of meeting while doing this show, and that's his brother, Matthew Lawrence. Mitchell is an actor turned uh, golf show host. You've seen Mitchell in shows and movies like 
Santa Barbara, the hand that rocks the cradle, One Tree Hill, Dawson's Creek, From the Earth to the Moon, one of my all-time favorite miniseries back that was on HBO. He's been in Matlock, in the heat of the night, in Living Color, Dragnet. The list goes on and on, folks. Mitchell's career is unbelievable. I, please Google him to see all the great things that I'm sure that you've seen him in. He's also done a, a couple of golf podcasts. The first was called Golf Connections, and you can hear him now co-hosting Talking Golf Getaways with Mitch and Darren alongside his co-host Darren Bunch. You can find uh, their podcast on thegolfnewsnet.com. His brother Matthew told me that uh, Mitchell is the greatest person on planet Earth. Since I was convinced that Matthew was, I certainly needed to have Mitchell on the show, and I'm thrilled that he is with me this morning here on Next on the T. Good morning, Mitch. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> You've got me laughing already. What a great introduction. <laughs> Thanks. I have to start off by saying that I know my brother said that, but he, uh, a little known story, he banged his head when he was really little. <laughs> so he, he often says things like, my brother's the greatest person on the planet. <laughs> I don't take him seriously <laughs> when it comes to that. <laughs> so, uh, so to that end, Mitch. You know, you're four years yeah. older than Matthew. Those four minutes of extra wisdom, has it been hard mentoring Matthew throughout the course of life's ups and downs? Oh, it has. Oh, boy, the stories I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Please it's do. so interesting to me. It's so interesting to me. Uh, we have had, uh, at 67 years of age now, uh, a pretty, both of us, pretty unbelievable lives all the way around. And been incredibly lucky, uh, gotten to do a ton of things that we both loved, have followed each other pathwise in a way that I would dare say most identical twins don't. Uh, it started with the acting part of our lives. Uh, we went to college in the same school, then we left thinking we'd drift apart and do our own thing. We wound up both acting, uh, where obviously where what you look like makes a difference. So there was a lot of challenges as well as great things that happened during both of our acting careers, and then uh, getting into the golf side of things. And uh, now both of us have been doing this for a while, and both of us have shows that we love, and obviously the game has connected us on a very different level than we ever had growing up. So it's been uh, it's been an amazing relationship, and obviously hope it goes on for a long time. Obviously, yes. And so, Mitch, before we get into all the golf stuff, you know, just walk me through briefly some of the highlights of your career in the entertainment industry, because you were on some of the most iconic TV shows of all time. Yeah, I think I was really lucky. Uh, the, the, the iconic part of the showbiz life started uh, in 1975, actually, when I was living in New York, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life after college. I uh, tried to get a job as a waiter at a restaurant in New York City. They turned me down. And I went and had lunch with a great friend of Matthew and mine, a guy named Alan Zweibel, uh, and was ranting about how I couldn't. I had a four-year college degree and could, couldn't get a job at Tavern on the Green in New York. And he had just started a job a couple months earlier on a show called Saturday Night Live. And he said, um, I think Lorne Michaels may need a gopher if you want to just do that and kind of kick around till you figure out what you want to do. And so I did. And that led to five years on the first five years of Saturday Night Live, which was a pretty good jumping off point, I think, <laughs> as far as being in show business. Indeed. Um, and Yeah. And uh, that's a whole series of shows about people that obviously were on there. But then in uh, 1980, I just decided I liked I had done some 
under five work on the show and extra work, and I decided I wanted to give acting a try. I moved through some connections I had made on Saturday Night Live. I moved out to L.A., started taking acting classes. Uh, and then the first real job that I had uh, was given to me by my friend Penny Marshall, who at the time was on a show called Laverne and Shirley. And as a birthday present, she gave me a part on Laverne and Shirley so I could get my SAG card. Uh, and about a year and a half after that, I went in for an audition for a show on HBO called, and HBO had just started, you have to remember. It had been on only a very short time. It wasn't really well known all over the country. And there was a show called Not Necessarily the News, uh, which I auditioned for and somehow miraculously got as part of their rep company and wound up doing that for almost seven years. And that was truly a, probably the best job I ever had on a continual basis. An amazing group of people, comedy, political satire, really fun. And during that time, I started guest starring on other stuff. And that's, um, that's when I got to do, you know, Matlock and uh, The Earth to the Moon, which you loved. And I love that you love that show. I thought it was just an amazing series. Uh, but I got to work with, over the years, people like uh, Gregory Peck and Lauren Bacall and Carl Malden, kind of iconic actors to me, as well as great, you know, shows of the modern era, if you want, if you want to call, it, if you want to call it that. So it was a great, great run. I stopped acting about three years ago. I said, okay, I've had enough. Uh, I had moved to Charlotte from L.A. and wound up doing three years on Matlock because they moved it to Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, and did a lot of TV movies and guest starring things and um, had a wonderful time. And also, just as a side note, got to do a lot of great stuff with Matthew. We did a lot of twin stuff. And that was obviously just an incredible experience all the way around. We did a show called Cop Rock, which Stephen Bochco, who created L.A. Law and a bunch of other shows did. And we had a running kind of recurring thing on that for a while. We did uh, a great show called The Outer Limits on the Sci-Fi Channel, which was one of my favorite jobs ever with Matthew. So it's as I said, it's been a it's been a long and and wonderful life. <laughs> so I gotta get just one detail about From the Earth to the Moon. You know, Tom Hanks put that together. It was a masterful mini series. What was it like for you being a part of, of, of that uh of that miniseries? Well I think for any uh anybody who is and it's the same with golf now or any kind of thing that you're passionate about. When you actually get into and research the things that you're doing, that to me was the most fascinating because I certainly was old enough to remember the Apollo missions um, and the things that happened. But once I started to do some research and uh, I played a guy named Bud Mahurin, who was one of the, the guys that was involved in the Apollo project and um it was an unbelievable group of people it was really uh, as you would imagine with tom hanks leading the way it was just a great experience it was it was one of those things where when you get the job you feel incredibly lucky uh, total professional atmosphere really fun atmosphere because everybody that was involved was a hundred percent in and uh absolutely one of the favorite best jobs i ever had Totally loved it. So, Mitch, let's talk golf. Where, where, when and where did your love for the game of golf come about? Uh, well, my brother and I both started late. We were never into golf growing up. Baseball, uh, Basketball was our main sport. We played football. Yeah, you we said played you used baseball. to beat up those kids. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, we were <laughs> we were huge physical specimens growing up. Both of us <laughs> together, we might have weighed 150 pounds in junior high school. Uh, but uh, we neither one of us did it. We had hit balls at a range during the summer a couple times, but it wasn't something that really grabbed. And uh, when I moved to L.A., I was 30 years old, and I moved out there to act. And I had a great friend named Keith Glass, who is one of the all-time great people and a big-time sports agent. And Keith had been moved to L.A. and was assistant coach under Larry Brown at UCLA during their great basketball years. And when I moved out there, Keith said, you got to play golf with me. He was the probably the one guy we knew who played growing up. And... I kept saying, I don't want to play. I have no interest in golf. And he kept bugging me. And then one day I said, all right, just to get you to shut up, I'm going to go play. And he said, I'll pick you up at 630. And I said, it's dark. And he said, uh, no, I mean 630 in the morning. And I said, I'm an actor. I don't get up at 630 unless I'm getting paid. So, But somehow I went out with him at that point and was immediately, because I was both Matthew and I were really good athletes growing up. There was never a sport that we struggled to play. And the first time I went out with Keith, I could not get the ball in the air. I couldn't hit it. I just, and I kept saying, what is this? There's nobody yelling. There's nobody trying to tackle you. There's nobody throwing at your head like there is in baseball. There's no noise. There's no distractions. And the ball's not moving and I can't hit it. And I think that was the beginning of why I kind of, it got under my skin. And so I kept playing. I was single at the time and got up to the point where I was playing probably four or five times a week. Uh, got down to a six handicap, wound up playing in a lot of celebrity charity events around the country. And that was kind of the introduction. And it, it literally, as I sit here in my office now looking around, it has given me every great thing that's come in my life since I started playing. And Mitch, I read you're an old school golfer to this day. Knickers, hickory shaft irons, persimmon woods. Talk about that and how you're still able to play that kind of equipment. Well, uh, it was an interesting journey for me because I think based on the fact that I was a six at one point and had played so much, as I got older and your body starts changing and you feel like you're swinging the same way, I found myself getting more frustrated as the years went by because I wasn't I wasn't practicing a lot. I had a family. There were other things going on. And at one point about, I would say about eight years ago, I was really thinking about giving up the game. I was so frustrated with it and the chase for distance and the technology of modern clubs and always some new driver and this and that. And, uh, and then I got to know and become friendly with uh, two people. One, Mike Just, who was at the time the head of Louisville Golf, uh, who, make, who made the persimmon woods for every great golf company over the years. Their founder, Elmore Just, uh, passed away sadly, but uh, he and his brother Mike had that company, and the marketing director was a guy named Josh Fisher, who's been still a great friend of mine. And I met them uh, in Pinehurst at a golf conference, and they were both playing hickories, and I hit them a few times, and I went, okay, this is this is pretty surreal. And then I got to play in a uh, something called the Chivas Iron Society, for, the, for those listeners who might know Golf in the Kingdom by Michael Murphy. And they had an outing at a place called Oakhurst Links up in next to the Greenbrier. And you get to play long nose play clubs and hit off sand tees and there's sheep in the fairway. It's a fabulous place. And I did that and I, something grabbed me. Something really grabbed me. And from that point on, I got a little deeper into it. And about six years ago, I put away my modern clubs. I just, 
I said, I think I've hit them twice since then. I just said, this is what interests me. I love hickories. Uh, I love the research of finding clubs. I love the connection to uh, club makers from 100 years ago and the different work they did. And it, it freed me from expectations of having to hit at a certain distance or having to shoot a score or all the things I was frustrated about went away immediately. And um, it's something that I've turned a few other people, good friends, Darren Bunch, my podcast co-host is a full-time Hickory player, our photographer at Golf News Net, Brian Orr is a full-time Hickory player. And we've, we've uh, turned a lot of people onto it. There's great Hickory societies around the world, literally. And um, the people who are involved in it are really, I think they are the purest of the pure when it comes to a connection to the game because they're just connected to the history in a way that if you play modern clubs, I don't think you can get. So let's talk about your Jack White driver. Bobby Jones used it to win the 1926 Open Championship in 10 of his 13 majors. Talk about tracking that down. Well, there's been a couple of Jack Whites that I managed to get hold of, and uh, it's, that's why I'm, what I'm talking about. Part of my love for it is the chase. Uh, and I had come across uh, in the research that I'd done for the first podcast that I did was called Hooked on Hickories. And I did a whole bunch of shows about the traditions of the game and uh, just talked to a lot of people. And in that discussion, uh, somewhere along the line, I really learned about Jack White and the Tom Stewart, the guy who made the irons for Bobby Jones. And, uh, you know, I just got connected to it. And so I started trying to track them down. Uh, the Jack White driver that I got, uh, was about a three month, three month chase. Uh, but I also have a brassy that's made by Jack White that I truly love too. And, uh, there's something about standing over it, seeing his name on the top. It says Jack White at Sunningdale. And when Bobby Jones went over and, uh, for the Grand Slam year and he was, you know, talking to, Jack White, and you know, it's you staring at a at a name and a club made by someone who is that connected uh, to Bobby Jones. Fittingly, you and I are talking about it after Bob Jones the fourth, and, and uh, I just that's the part of the connection that I love. Those those things are what make the make the game fun and interesting for me now. Have you hit Hickory? Hey, Mitch, I, no, I have not. So I'm intrigued by the thought, though. Well, we have to remedy that sometime because uh, I think uh, I think someone who loves the game the way you do and who's connected to places like Augusta and the history of it, too, I think you'd love it. We'll have to find a way to do that. Absolutely. And to that end, like, I, you know, Mitch, I also read, you know, like most of us, your bucket list courses are Augusta National and Royal County down over in Northern Ireland. And as my listeners know, Augusta National is, you know, my favorite place on the planet. I've been fortunate to at least uh, attend a practice round every year since 01. And I told my wife if I, uh, when I pass on to have my ashes spread over Augusta National. So hopefully one day, you know, someone from Augusta National, if they happen to be listening and they see the ashes underneath an azalea bush, don't worry, it's just me. But talk about your, your affinity for Augusta National as well. Well, I, I, feel like you do. I'm sure I feel privileged to be able to go as a member of the Golf Writers Association. I go every year also. I can't believe we haven't bumped into each other before this. Um, but I think just having that feeling, the first time I got to go, I have a good friend in Myrtle Beach whose wife is from Augusta. She grew up about half a mile from the golf course. And one year they were kind enough to uh, bring my wife Ava and I. And I walked around and as soon as I stepped through that gate, 
and you tell, I'm sure you've done this, you tell people that no matter what they see on TV, you truly have no idea of what Augusta National is like. There's no possible way that anything can convey the beauty of it, the peace of it, uh, the staggering elevation change, which on TV just looks like, well, yeah, there's some elevation. But when you're standing down at the bottom of the valley on 9 or at the T on 10 and then walk down to the 10th green, and there's so many spots that are just incredible. Um, I, it's like I said, I feel lucky to get to experience it, and I go back every year and take advantage of that um, that chance because no matter how many times I go, as soon as I walk through the gates, I have the same feeling. And I always go and kind of commune with Bobby Jones. You stand by his cabin and just kind of look at it and think for a while. It just it's it's a truly truly amazing place. I wish everybody who loves the game could get to go. And Mitch, as we've alluded to throughout, you know, our conversation, you host your own golf show now, which is, you know, quickly becoming one of my favorite podcasts along with Backspin Golf, which your brother Matthew hosts. Talk about, you know, how you got started doing your show and some of the guests that you really enjoyed getting the opportunity to speak with. Well, um, the, the earlier podcast, both Hooked on Hickories and Golf Connections, gave me a chance to connect with people like you and a lot of people you've had on your show I've been lucky enough to have on my earlier podcasts. And those were interview shows like this one where I could spend a half hour or an hour with people talking about the history of the game and golf. Uh, but I had Darren Bunch has been a good friend of mine now for probably 10 years. And we had done work together. He used to have, he and his partner, Vic Williams, had a magazine called Fairways and Greens, which turned into Golf Getaways magazine. And um, Golf Getaways was obviously a lot about golf and travel. And so Darren and I started doing uh, travel trips together as part of the Golf Getaways team. And I would host videos and they would do the writing part. Brian would do photography, Brian Orr. And through that, over the last few years, Darren and I just kept saying, and we have a great relationship, we have a lot of fun, and um, I guess about eight months ago, we decided to go ahead and I said, you know what we should do? We should do a travel-based, uh, travel-related podcast, because there literally is nothing that is strictly about golf and travel, and destinations, and lifestyle, food, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, people have segments on about it, but there was nobody focusing just on that. And I said, the, the common denominator for every golfer I've ever met is they love to travel and play different places. So we got together and um, I had a chance meeting with Ryan Ballingy, who's the creator and uh, force behind Golf Newsnet. And he's been doing it for, you know, about five years. And he's gotten it to a point where it's a fantastic website. He deals with the PGA Tour and equipment and all kinds of different things. But the, he didn't have a travel component. So Darren and I partnered up with Ryan. And we created um, Talking Golf Getaways. We had our first show in November of 2016. Uh, it is now July. We have probably about 75 of them up. And uh, they really... They include people from all different kinds of of the golf industry and the golf world, great destination people, um, Mike Kaiser Jr., Josh Lesnick from Kemper Sports, uh, David McClay Kidd, the great architect. The list really goes on and on. Um, and so we're, we're thrilled. We get to do this. We get to travel. We just came back from – we were at Bandon in March. We just got back from – uh, Cabot Links and Cape Breton Island and mainland Nova Scotia. We just got back a week ago from there. We were there for 10 days. And uh, so we get to do 
we get to do what we love. We get to travel and talk about golf and have fun people on like you do. And uh, I can't think of anything that we'd rather do. Mitch, just a couple more before we let you go. And, and, and I've asked Matthew this, and I want to get your, your point of view. Looking back on your life, you know, from growing up in Queens and, and seeing all the great things that you've achieved over the course of your life and over the course of your career and your quiet moments, do you ever sit back and reflect on the difference that you've made in so many people's lives through the work that you've done? Um, no. <laughs> I, and I, I say that quickly and honestly because I don't think I've ever looked at it that way. Uh, I think anything that I've ever done has come from a passion that I have for something, whether it is people or it was for acting or for golf or for any of that. I think it comes from a place of pure connection and pure interest and curiosity. And uh, obviously it's always my hope that other people – gain some knowledge from something that I might have done that I could turn them on to, but I've never, I've never looked at it from my point of view. I've always looked at it from how incredible it's been to have the opportunity to do everything I've done. So let me put a little, a little different spin on it. How about when you're playing on some of the best golf courses on the planet, like you've talked about and and some of the things that you've done, are you ever amazed that a kid from the neighborhood in Queens is standing, you know, in the fairway of, you know, this course or that course or playing along this celebrity or that golf personality. Has it ever struck you like, wow, unbelievable, a kid, you know, this kid from Queens is doing this? Yes. Yes, that has definitely happened and continues to happen. Uh, I don't think, I think if you ever lose that, then there's there's something really wrong. Um, I just, I have always felt, and like I said, everything that I have in my life now uh, from meeting my wife of almost 23 years, it'll be 23 years next month, at a celebrity golf tournament, uh, to being able to travel the world, share times with my brother and my other friends. Uh, I, everything I have right now is because I started playing the game. And I'll never lose that. I don't, I don't really don't think I'll ever lose that. The celebrity part of it, the charity events and the traveling and the pro-ams was truly one of the great parts of my life. Uh, that was an opportunity that I, I was always like a little kid because like all of us growing up, if we were into sports, I had the opportunity, as did my brother, to hang with the idols of our youth and sit with them and talk to them for hours and that kind of stuff. I, I never, I never was able, every once in a while, it was like being on Saturday Night Live. I was, I would sit there and I'd be sitting in the green room looking across and go, wait, that's Mick Jagger. <laughs> just some guy sitting across on a couch from me. And I felt the same way about golf. I have always looked at it about, you know, in, in the same way and with the same gratitude, certainly. So, Mitch, let our listeners know again how they can listen to you, your co-host, Darren Bunch, and uh, your show, Talking Golf Getaways, how they can find you guys online. Well, I appreciate that, Chris. Uh, golf News Net, thegolfnewsnet.com is the website. Uh, they can listen to it on iTunes podcasts on audio boom also and uh darren and i you know we get them up there often so if you if you're interested in finding out about it in advance the best way is uh on twitter and instagram um at mitch lawrence that's l-a-u-r-a-n-c-e uh darren is at getaways golf on twitter and at golf getaways on instagram and we're always putting things up we're always kind of giving a shout out to podcast people and um you know, certainly I'll be thanking you there for 
for having me on. I've heard a lot of great things about you from my brother, and now I, I guess I have to say you're the greatest person on the planet. <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. I guess. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick, I'm gonna stick with what Matthew said. Uh, I, I think he proved out this, you know, the, our time together proved out you are the greatest person on the planet. So I think it's a traveling trophy. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, Mitch, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be a part of the show. It's been a huge thrill for me to get to spend some time with you. I hope you'll come back again soon, share more of your stories, more of your insights with the, uh, with our audience because you're absolutely fantastic. Well, I would love to do that, and I hope if you get a few spare days, you make the trip over to Myrtle Beach. You're close, and uh, I know people. Let's just say I know people. I can do things here. Come visit. <laughs> uh, I may take you up on that. I appreciate you. No, you should take me up on that. I'll get you out you with absolutely the Absolutely. I promise. All right. Okay. Take care, Mitch. Thanks Again, for thanks for your time. I look forward to catching up with you soon. Great. Appreciate it. That is the great Mitchell Lawrence. Again, you know, uh, so many great things, folks, you know, that he has been a part of and, and, and done in the past. So I, I highly encourage you to Google, you know, his career and uh, start listening to his show. Again, it's, co- talk, it's called Talking Golf Getaways with Mitch and Darren. They do a great job. You can find it on thegolfnewsnet.com. Stay up to date with all the great things they're doing. I look forward to having Mitch back on the show, like I say, again, hopefully very, very soon. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. But before we close up shop, I always like to remind you about our friend PGA Tour Pro Jim Estes and the great folks over at the Salute Military Golf Association because they're doing such great things. Let's hear a word from Jim. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S. If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. Yeah, folks, they continue to do such great things over at the Salute Military Golf Association. Please, to find out more information and to see how you can get involved, go to smga.org. I also want to remind you about our friends over at SyncIt.com. You know how we like to keep things on the positive side here on Next on the T and have a positive approach both in life and on the golf course. Well, we're excited to be partnering with the folks at SyncIt.com. Keep putting that positive thought of sinking the putt in your mind with their great line of t-shirts and hats. To win any tournament, you got to sink that final putt. We wake up every day to finish strong, sink the putt, close the deal, work hard, get better each and every day. Have the confidence to push forward towards your dreams with unwavering passion, and you're going to sink it in life. Check them out. Check them out online at sinkit.com. And I also want to give a shout-out to our new friends over at Par Bar. Energy and focus on the course is essential, whether you're playing, you know, on the tour, in the club championship, or on a weekend four ball with your buddies. Par Bar, the the golfer's nutritional bar, can help you win and do both of those things. You know, keep your mind fresh, 
keep your energy up, keep your focus. Parbar was developed by a lifelong golfer and a food scientist to help all of us play our very best. Go to parbargolf.com to see for yourself and to order yours today. All right, everybody, my sincere thanks again to Eric Johnson, Ed Byman, Bob Jones IV, and Mitchell Lawrence for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did half as much as I did, then we're in good shape. Please uh, give us your thoughts. Check out our page on Facebook, Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Share your feedback there. You know, Plus, if you have a question for you know, one of our future guests, let me know, and I'll be sure to get it on the show for you. You can also go to our website, nextonthetee.net, to see who some of our future guests are going to be. Plus, you can stream or, or download our archive episodes from there. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host, Bob Lazari, our announcer, Joe Lajanusha. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can stream it live on Blog Talk Radio, and that show like this one is also available as a free podcast on TuneIn.com and Podbean as well. On Thursday Night Tailgate, we're joined every week by five NFL legends sharing their stories from their playing days and their insights into today's game. We also highlight two players doing great things in their communities in our Spotlight on the Positive segment. Again, you can find both shows available online, nextonthetee.net for this show and thursdaynighttailgate.com. Like I say, our, uh, our archive episode stream, download any of them for free, plus uh, keep up to date with who our uh, future guests are going to be on both shows by going on both websites. Thanks again for choosing to listen to this show today, folks. We know you got a lot of podcasts and a lot of shows out there available to you. We really appreciate the fact that you are making Next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit him straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the T with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA legends, pros and top instructors, and media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Saturday to hear more stories about the game we love from the people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf.